Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, we're going to continue um, just developing the last point that we were talking about, that, you know, when you're looking at this list of different midot, uh, negative and positive, one of the ways that you can sort of try to pinpoint and think about what's your best trait, we said that, you know, there are many people who like to do chesed, but um, we have something that's called the nakuda of shefa. The nakuda of shefa um, is that trait which really defines you, you know, that was present from the time you were three years old that your mother could have said, oh boy, you were always into justice, you know, you were always passionate about helping or worried about the lady on the street with no money, whatever it is, right? You noticed these things. You were always into kids when you were growing up, you know, whatever, you know, that manifested. So that's called your Nakuda of Shefa, meaning it's something that Hashem gave you a lot of, and it's the one that you could excel at, and it's your strength. And one of the examples that we gave is, you know, there are a lot of people under normal circumstances who like to do good things, but somebody who, God forbid, is in a situation that's not normal, and the example we gave is in the Holocaust, you know, somebody who would be in a death camp, or God forbid, in some kind of situation, and they still can't help but want to give half their ration away, is somebody whose nakuda of shefa is so strong that even in a moment of complete and utter pressure, it remains. So sometimes we said we don't even know what our nakuda of shefa is because we haven't even been put in a situation where we've discovered it. But normally speaking, we would say that most people, you know, know what their nakuda of shefa is if they think about it, and it's something that Hashem, you know, brings in front of us over and over again. And, you know, sometimes it's something... I mean, in every case, it's strong, and and a person should try to strengthen it even more. Because we said that as you strengthen your strengths, your negatives naturally atrophy. They get sort of pulled up by the strengths, as opposed to directly trying to work on your weaknesses, which can allow the Yetzirah to bring you to despair and say, oh, why don't you just give it up because you've been like this forever and you always say the wrong thing or you always speak and Hara or, you know, you're always the impulsive person that, whatever, jumps the gun. So just give it up because it's not going to change. So again, one way in the Musser approach of building your character traits is to develop your strengths. And we also said that your strengths sometimes actually, even though it's directly conflicts with your weakness, it actually can help pull your weakness up. And we gave the example of somebody who's driven to do chesed as their positive, but their negative is that they're very lazy. So, you know, lazy means they just want to sit around and do nothing, and yet, if somebody calls them up and says, you know, we have an emergency, we need you to help this person, they can't help themselves but have to do it because that pulls them, and it pulls their lazy part with them. And so even though that laziness is still very much a trait that Hashem gave them, that they're not responsible for, and we talked about that, the same way you're not responsible for your homer, meaning the character positive traits that you were given, and therefore shouldn't be guy the dick and arrogant about them, so too you should not be uh, desperate and, 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 and beat yourself up because of the fact that you also have some negative stuff. And that also was given to you. It wasn't something that you necessarily developed or chose. And these, this is our pekala, and each one of us, our constellation of positives and negatives, we said, you know, what makes us so unique and different, just like the idea that no two faces are the same and no two person has the same fingerprints, is even if I choose the same ten positives as Talia and the same ten negatives as Talia, they're going to be in different measures and different doses. Talia has no negatives. Oh, I'm sorry. Ah. Only the positives. Thank you, Mom. Uh, what a mother. That's why you need a mother. A mother. 
he always sees the positive. Anyway, um, yeah, forget the negatives. I'm sorry, I picked on the wrong person. Is there anybody else with a mother here? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. How do you um, what word is speak up when you have people that have a certain strength that they display only in public? Why would they do that? It's natural. People are on their best behavior in public. Again, that's a self-esteem so issue, that, right? How does that, um, I don't know, how does that well, work? I mean, like they can... lo lishma, ba maybe, you know. Right. Maybe they're doing it for the wrong reason, but hopefully it will filter over into the right reason. Or, you know, that's an approval-seeking type of personality, right? I'm doing this because I want people to like me, because I want people to honor me. I want people to think I'm something very great. You know, but yet when I'm behind closed doors, I can't do it. But let's face it, we're all much better in front of the public, right? They always give that example. You know, you could be yelling and screaming at your kid and then the doors, ding dong, oh hi, <laughs> it's so nice to see. All of a sudden we can turn it off in a second and we're just amazed by ourselves that we could do such a thing, right? And we say like, wow, and we can't do that for some reason when we're in our own house, in in the situation, and yet in a second we can switch from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde, if need be, because of public and social approval. So again, that has something to do with, obviously it's somewhat, it's related in some tangential way again, to where do you get your self-esteem from? You know, is it about you and your inner self-worth and God and Hashem, and that I know what Hashem expects from me? Or is it about what so many people can get caught up in, you know, seeing themselves the way the people out there see them. You know, like sometimes my husband, I shouldn't be so personal, but you know, he'll say something, everybody loves you if I'm like not behaving nicely. And I'll say, I don't care if everybody loves me. So what? Big deal if everybody loves me. They don't live with me. <laughs> they don't really know me. They're not going to tell me what's wrong with me. Right? And we all know that marriage is like a microscope. So even if you think you're really good out there, your kids and your husband wake you up pretty quickly to the fact that you still got work to do. So, you know, don't tell me that because that's, that's, that's easy. That's easy to, to win everybody else's approval. The hard work is what do you, what do you like at home and what are you doing in terms of real development, not just, you know, putting on whatever, a show that's easy. So again, we're talking about, um, you know, which meadows fly out the window during times of pressure, even good meadows that you have, and which stay with you no matter what's going on. So we gave another example. We gave the example of somebody who has to tell the truth. They're honest to a fault. So it doesn't matter. They'll never change the truth. And then there are other people who, yeah, they mostly tell the truth, but you know what, if they're under pressure and they're caught red-handed and they can somehow get away with it, they'll easily, quickly divert the attention to the other guy and say, it wasn't my fault, she made me do it, right? And not take responsibility. And, and if a lie can get them off, then they'll do that, right? And we know that lying, just like avak lashanhara, can be something so almost imperceptible. But, you know, if our, if something's at, ri at, um, stake, you know, some of us will easily go there. And yet somebody who is a, honest to a fault wouldn't do it. And then you have the, you know, extreme. You have somebody who lies even when they're not triggered. They've just become used to lying. And they lie even when there's nothing going on. You know, that would be called a pathological liar. So, she gives a few examples. And then the other things are, which of my bad meadows, like, think about this, this is the flip, and this is new, this is something new we didn't talk about. Which of your bad meadows are still there even when the circumstances are good? Mm -hmm. So she gives an example. She says, for example, where do I have a low tolerance threshold as opposed to a high tolerance threshold? For example, she gives an example. It sounds like me when I was a kid, but whatever. People who are on in a who even on their birthday are even in a bad mood, even with all the parties and the presents, okay? Because even with all the party and with all the attention and everything else, you know, they didn't get the thing they wanted, right? 
or, you know, somebody else that had a birthday last week had this at their birthday party and I didn't. So even under good situations, their bad meat oats seem to shine. Or she says, people who are on vacation, but they can't enjoy their vacation because they're still anxious that they're not going to get to the dining room before everybody else has a go at the sweet table. You know, you could imagine this on a Jewish cruise, right? Ah. <laughs> or any kind of Jewish function, right? But people who, you know, they've got that kiddish fork, you know? So they could get over, you see that comedian who does all these things? The Jewish comedian has the kiddish fork, he calls it. He pulls it out and he lengthens it and he says, this way you can go to any kiddish. It doesn't matter how many people are around the table, you can get that piece of kugel. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, oh, I, and while we're on this, I have to tell you one of my one of my the jokes that I love the most. Okay, which is Rabbi Becker told this. He said that you know there was a, a a minister and a rabbi who were discussing you know their congregation, and the minister said, you know, in our religion, we have we see miracles all the time. You know, if you believe in you know who. You know, I've seen miracles. People throw away their crutches, people who couldn't walk, you know, people who were blind, they can see again. It's unbelievable. He says, do you have something like that in your religion? So the rabbi thinks for a minute. He goes, yes, we do. We have something like that too. He said, and what is that? He said, we have something called the sweet table. And ladies and gentlemen, it's the sweet table, right? And she goes, he goes, you would not believe what happens when the sweet table comes up. People throw away their crutches, you know, people who couldn't see, people who couldn't walk. It's unbelievable what goes on. <laughs> anyway, that's yeah, a good joke for Colin. Anyway, so, you know, that's what I'm saying. So... You know, which bad meetups are still with me, even when things are good? The more I understand my weaknesses and my strengths, the more I can have resilience about being affected by outside influences. And, you know, back to that idea again. My strengths are gifts from Hashem, and my weaknesses are gifts from Hashem. And the solid place of a person evaluating themselves is always to ask, what does Hashem think of me? I don't care what you think of me or he thinks of me. Okay, listen, I have to function in society, and obviously it's a measure of how you're doing if you have chain and people like you or whether they, you know, run away when you come. I mean, we have to take some measure of, you know, from, from what's going on socially around us. But on the other hand, the common fault of human beings is to put all of our eggs in that basket and measure who we are based on other people around us. And again, what we're working on in this VUD is to realize, to get away from the, what do other people think of me? And measure my spiritual growth in a healthy way by looking at it through Hashem's eyes and not by those around us. So one of the women who actually I met on this trip that I also met this teacher on was a woman named Bacha Gallant. And she mentioned her in this class and then we all, she had a, her books with her, so we all bought her book. But it's a very interesting book, and it's it's not it's not very available, I don't think. But it's a book called by Bacha Gallant, G A L L A N T. It's a book called Stages of Spiritual Growth. And what she says in her book is spiritual growth is measured by distance covered, and not by destination reached. Anybody need to hear that again? Okay, I mean, we all understand that, that you have a ladder, and in Hashem's eyes, it's not about where you began on the ladder, whether you began down here, or whether you began close to the top. The question, and what Hashem looks at, and the way that He judges us, is how much distance we've covered, right? Sometimes when you're at the bottom, it's easier to cover more ground, because the work becomes finer and more when you were born at the top, right? So again, that's what we should be comparing yourself to, to my former former level. I wrote something when I was a teenager that I memorized, and it went like this. There is no nobility in feeling superior to those around you. True nobility comes... Sorry, there's no nobility in being superior to others. True nobility comes in being superior to your previous self. 
So that is really, there's no nobility in being superior to others. True nobility comes in being superior to your previous self. When you compare yourself to others, your self-esteem suffers. When you compare yourself to your former level and not to others, then you realize, I have my own distance to cover based on my unique constellation of my strengths and weaknesses. There's no nobility in being superior to others. True nobility comes in being superior to your previous self. So I have a perspective of myself, and suddenly I'm in a situation which triggers low self-esteem, let's just say, because of some external criteria that I'm measuring myself next to. Oh, she's got more money than me. Oh, they've got better kids than I have. Oh, her husband's so much nicer than my husband. Oh, that family seems so much happier than we are, right? And so when I compare myself to you, and she gives an example. She says, I think I've given this example, you know, the person who went to Harvard and goes to an Ivy League college and all of a sudden realizes that there's, hey, a lot of smart people in the world. And that, wow, I used to always be the smartest in the class. And what's going on here? Because, you know, all of a sudden I'm in the middle or maybe even near the bottom. So if my self-esteem's always been based on being the top of the class or being the prettiest or having the most money or having the most well-behaved children or the healthiest body, right? Well, all of a sudden, hi, Rachel, welcome. All of a sudden, I've, I'm, I'm totally lost because... Somebody has better and more and, you know, and I thought we were a really good family until I was next to, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Perfect and their perfect kids, right? So what's going on? So... But people look perfect on the outside. Like, you don't... That's well, that's true. I mean, anybody who's lived long enough usually finds out that whatever they were jealous of with somebody else, they probably had no reason to be jealous because they didn't really know what else is going on. Like My husband story. always says that. He says, it's amazing how the longer I live, the people that I thought were to be, you know, people I thought I should be jealous of, their lives turned into the biggest messes because whatever. The point is they looked on the outside like they had everything. But we're superficial when we think that that's necessarily the way it is. Listen, we wish everybody that what's on the outside and on the inside should be easy, should be matched. Of course not. But on the other hand, you know, thinking a little deeper into the situation in order to relieve our own jealousy and realize nobody's got everything. You know, I remember one woman saying, you know, it seems like a shem is like, you know, one family might have lots of money, but then they have trouble with shadukim for their kids. Another family might have easy shadukim with their kids, but they've got no money, you know, or, or no health, or no, whatever it is. The point is, is there seems to, you know, always be, and nobody's got everything. That's the truth. And we have no idea what's going on in other people's. And everybody knows that, mashallah, about the train station, and how everybody tur puts their bags down, and they say, okay, everybody, go ahead, go pick up anybody's suitcase you want. Everybody can take a look in everyone else's bag, and you can pick whatever one you want, right? And what's the end of that story? Everyone takes their own. Exactly. Everyone goes back to their own because they say, I know this pekala. I can handle this because it's mine. And the truth is it is yours, and you have the strengths and the weaknesses, you know, that are supposed to work together, and somehow that's that's your that's your tsura, that's your pekala to take your homer and to form something out of it, make something of yourself with it, right? So we can't really decide who's best. There really is no pecking order, even though we like to say, you know, that's the best, this is second best, this is third best. She says there's no pecking order because all of our mitos, negative and positive, are constantly interacting with each other. So what if somebody has the best marks in school? Do they have the best marks in compassion or are they sorely missing in that area? So what if this person is, you know, really honest? Maybe they have no sense of humor and they're always taking offense. So again, we're a constellation of so many different things that when we try to make a pecking order, 
It's an illusion because our constellation of traits are always bouncing off each other and working together. Okay. Self-esteem should not change based on the comments people make or the comments that I make in my head by external reality that I see around me or even by a crisis that I'm going through. That's the hardest part. That's the hardest part. Why is that the hardest part? Because when you're isolated in um, a crisis, no, in a like at the, at the table here. At the what? At the table here. In theory, everything makes sense until you're faced with a situation where someone says something that does, you know, sting. Sting that you know that there's truth to it, or you enough that you need to consider it, or um, or when you're pushed to a point where. You do something that you don't like about yourself or whatever. You know, just all the examples you gave. Mm-hmm. And then you really, you know, that is when you have to engage the these to tools. The yeah. <laughs> and remember about them. Yeah. yeah. So that's the, and that's the work. And that's yeah. why, you know, people do buds because the more you talk about and the more you continue to kind of peel back the layers and the more it becomes a conversation and self-talk in your head, the better and better you become at it. Mm-hmm. And again, back to that you know idea that I come back to that I think is so freeing, and I wish they would teach it in Vesiaco. Maybe they do, but I don't know. From my experience and from my, you know, my chinuch, I, I really love the idea that we are not responsible for our first response, that we have no free will when it comes to that. That if somebody makes a comment to you and you feel stung by it, that's okay. And if, you know, you're like consumed by jealousy because somebody's driving a nice car or whatever it might be, that's okay. What's not okay is when we leave it there and it develops and it becomes hated, hatred, or it becomes you don't deserve that, I deserve it. And we're going to talk more about that when we keep going. But the point is, too, is that what we want to do, again, is the free will aspect comes in when we say, I can't leave it there. I have to move it from regesh to sechel. That's the work to make sense out of it. Whether it's, gee whiz, maybe there was some truth in what they said. Maybe God sent them. Not what is, why is he saying this to me, but why did he send him to say this to me? Or maybe there's no truth in it. And I have to say, you know what? It's not about me. It's about them. Nebuch. But I certainly am not going to take revenge or walk around hating that person because Nebuch. Can you just remind me the source of the fact that we're allowed to feel that first sting and have resentment or jealousy? It's probably, it's Revolve from Ali Shore. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. So, so again, we are human. human. So, you know, like pretending that people are born or their tzaddikim, without having to have gone through that growth, is an illusion. Or beating yourself up. I'm such a rotten person. I can't believe I'm jealous. What's wrong with me? I, I thought I was so much better than I am. I'm, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to clup away. I'm just going to, you know, or I'm going to pretend to be on the top of the mountain when I didn't even do the work. Because it's too painful to be real with myself. Because somebody taught me somewhere along the line that you're not supposed to be real. That you're supposed to be born a sadekis and a tzaddik. Right? Which is not real. And I'm not saying there aren't people who are born very close to the top of the mountain. That they begin there. They do. Because they have holy ancestors and because they were brought, you know, God put them in a family with incredible people. And because their midot are very evolved. Yes, there are people like that, and they're incredible people, and there are angels that fell from heaven, and we meet them sometimes, and we're in awe of them, you know? And there are people who begin there. But even they, if they're in this world, and they're, you know, it's not their time yet, even they, on some very refined level, are working and developing. And it might not be as coarse and as, you know whatever the word is, as our work, but it, everybody's got work. Even if they're in this world to be role models for us to keep trying to get there. 
So that's very important that you're not responsible for that first response, but you are responsible for trying to crumble those feelings that are connected against what the Torah is telling us that we have to become. And the sooner you crumble it, the less opportunity it has to become this hard stone that becomes very, very difficult to break up and get rid of. Okay, is everybody... Any questions? Okay, so one other idea. Your self-esteem should be solid, and she sort of bases this more on, like, as a parent, you know. Your child's self-esteem shouldn't be based on the fact that in grade four she had a great teacher, and in grade five she had a rotten teacher. Or, you know, last summer she got into the best bunk with all the best girls, and this summer, you know, she's in a bunk that she wishes she wasn't in. You know, there's a few nice girls, but it's not the, the best bunk. If her self-esteem or your self-esteem, you know, in your own situations changes because I didn't get the best one or I didn't, you know, it's not the opportune situation that I would have liked and that somehow influences your sense of self-worth. Well, I only feel good when I'm with the popular girls in the popular bunk. I don't really quite know what to do with myself when I have to be nice to the nebuchs that I now have in my bunk, right? Or I have to be, you know, in a classroom where not everybody's as smart as I am or the teacher's not as good as the one I had last year. So if that's the kind of thing that moves you out of your sense of self, that's not good. Okay, so those are some examples. And we talked about this other idea that so another level of self-awareness is, you know, we, we said that really somebody who's got hishta'avut, who's developed this equilibrium where criticism and praise are the same. They don't get moved out of their sense of self because someone tells them they're great or the opposite. Someone tells them, you know, you, you're, 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 you don't have a brain in your head, right? They, they, they know, my, no, that's not... Right, but then if that's not affecting us, what? Where does our information like? We get information from those things, from criticism and praise, right? Then what is supposed to affect me? Everybody understand the question? If criticism and praise aren't supposed to affect me, what should affect me? Where does outside information belong? So. I sort of mentioned this a little bit last week, that we said that we have to realize, we have to be careful because this sense of being even-keeled and having a good sense of self could actually be coming from a place of gaiva, a place of arrogance. How so? It could be coming from a very apathetic or cold place. And I said this last week, when somebody criticizes, criticizes me, I'm so full of myself that I just kind of look at that person and go like, oh, like, you are criticized. Like, who are you to criticize me? Like, you know, I'm prettier than you. I have more money than you. I'm the, like, get off my case. We know people like this. Like, how dare you criticize me, you, little aunt, right? And the same thing, though, even when it comes to praise, it's like they're unmoved by it because, you know, that thank you, but like you praising me, like, you know, it's like me praising God, like, you know, like, did I just add a feather in God's cap? I don't know. I don't think so, right? So, you, you know, you didn't do anything for me because it's coming from you. So a person could think that they have mastered this hishta'avut, that, you know, I'm not moved by other people's praise or by their criticism, but it's not real because it's coming from a place of gaiva. Isn't that an interesting idea? Okay, I'm sure that's a rare personality, but I'm sure they exist. No, Kathy knows some of those people, right? I'm okay, you're not okay, right? I used to, my mother used to have that book by her bedside, I'm okay, you're okay. And as a, you know, as a moody, whatever, cynical teenager, I walk by that book and go, what a bunch of baloney, it should be, I'm okay, you're not okay. <laughs> that's really the way we think, isn't it? I guess the purpose of the book was to change that, but I didn't know that. Um, anyway, um, so another idea is when you're open to outside influence, and we gave this example, you know, 
you just happen to be invited to a Shabbos table where the other people's kids are sitting there so nicely and they're using their fork and knife so beautifully and your kids are eating with their fingers and they're underneath the table and they're throwing things and they're saying things that are so embarrassing and you leave that place going, oh my God, we're the most dysfunctional family around. <laughs> we should just give it up, right? Because... You know, we're comparing ourselves to that family. Or, you know, I was just in a room with a whole bunch of scientists and the speaker got up and I think he was speaking English, but except for and and the, you know, I didn't really understand anything they said. I thought I was smart. I'm really stupid. Somebody once told me when she was a kid when she'd have to sit at shul with the rabbi sermon. We were cracking up. We were talking about Hebrew school and all those things. You know, all we learned in Hebrew school was, you know, words about how they tried to kill Jews. That's the only vocabulary we had by the time we finished Hebrew school. But aside from that, she also said she still remembers sitting as a kid trying to, like, listen to the rabbi's sermon. It was like, and, the, you know, big, like, whatever. Like, all the other words were just, vocabulary was way, way above. So, you know, I must be dumb because everybody else is so smart. So when we do that, what do we need to do? Take the, from the regesh, right, those feelings of, ugh, I'm just, I thought I was smart, I'm stupid, I thought I was pretty, I'm not, I thought our family had it together, but I see that we're dysfunctional. Instead of doing that, she says, maybe I can learn something from these people with the perfect children. Instead of an emotional response, what we should be doing is saying, what can I learn from this? She says, put a sifter on top of your head, okay, imagine a sifter on top of your head, and it's level-headed, you know, you're balancing it, it's not toppling over, you're, 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 you're walking in a balanced way, level-headed, you're calmly integrating new information into your already solid self-esteem. You're learning from the situations around you. Wow, isn't that interesting how that mother talks to her children? I could do that. That's a really nice way that she had with that kid who was acting up. You know, tell me about your feelings, you know, whatever it is, whatever the latest thing is. Say your feelings while they're punching out the other kid, you know, or I'm sure Nessie has a lot of good ideas for us. But the point is, is, you know, think about that instead of saying, Oi, I thought I was such a good parent or, ugh, you know, I'm really not as good as I thought I was. Because again, what are we doing? Regesh. We're, 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 we're making assumptions about ourselves. We're beating ourselves up. We're saying, I'm so great compared to them, or I'm so lousy compared to them, right? And both of them are wrong. They're both disproportionately wrong. They're extreme. And instead, when we get out of the regesh of like having to compare ourselves to others in order to figure out who we are for negative and for positive, instead we're saying, you know what? Okay, that I noticed that compared to them, we got some work to do, but that's okay because maybe there's something I can learn here and I can integrate into my family. And that's called the Seicha way of learning new information without it moving you out of your sense of self, without you saying, oh, I am such a, mm, or a, ugh, I can't believe myself. When we're open to outside input in a rational way, we can even, like David HaMelech said, gain from hearing from our enemies. David HaMelech said, you know, uh, when my enemies, when my enemies rise up against me, I listen. So call the homer when your friends tell you something or say something. Davina Mel is saying if you're the type of person who's into self-growth, then even when it's coming from a source that isn't exactly pack, you know, packaged in a beautiful bow, the person who is into wanting to learn from every outside experience that they can right? The person who understands that I'm in a box, like we've said, I can't really see myself. I'm just coming up and down out of my box. People see me from all around. I don't have that perspective. So maybe there's something, even if it's only a small little something 
but if it will help me have a new self-awareness or something that I can run with, for good or for bad, they told me some positive thing, not an enemy, a friend. Oh, wow, well, I knew maybe I had that trait, but I didn't know that it was so marked, and I could really, you know, that could be my calling in life, or that could be something that I should pay more attention to, you know, um, whatever. So again, back revolve, right here it says, the primary response will be emotional. It will always be emotional. But we need to hand it over to the cognition. That's the work. The Seiko says, I'm doing okay, but I want to do an even better job. The Seiko says, what can I learn from this? Not, ugh, I'm a total failure. <laughs> I should just give it up. Oh, I say I, I, I said I'm going to do that so many times, and I just, I never do. Just, just give up. And we said, really, you know, Robertson Heller says there's two voices of the Yetzirah. Just to be aware, one is, I'm great. I'm doing great. I'm fantastic compared to you. Ha! I'm really doing well. I don't need to work on anything. You need to work on everything. I'm fine. I'm good. And then the other voice is, you know what, why do you even bother? You know, you said you were going to do that. You said you were going to, you know, whatever it is. You weren't going to eat sugar and white flour. You said that. You know how many times you've said that? Just forget it. Just go and enjoy yourself, okay? Give it up. You're never going to win this battle. That's the other voice, okay? And those are the two voices in different, you know, so the Seicha, realize I have something to learn from this situation. It doesn't change my healthy sense of self. And the homework is to try to observe yourself. Try to be a Gemini. You know what Gemini? My brother's a Gemini. I remember reading about it when I was a kid. Gemini are the twins. And they say that people from that sign are almost like split personalities in that they always feel like they're watching themselves. They're like, they've got this little, are you a Gemini? A Gemini what yeah. month is that? Does that ring true with you for anything? So. Wouldn't everybody yeah. be that way? Not necessarily, no. They just have like an extra like sort of like little camera on themselves that comes from themselves, of like watching themselves from outside and saying, how are you doing? You know, I just remember that. But it's kind of this idea. It says, you know, try to observe yourself. Try to self-study. You know, this is uh, Rabbi Puskin's book, Anger, the Inner Teacher. The whole book is about how in order to conquer anger, if you're, if that's one of your weaknesses, you can learn so much if you pay attention to what gets you angry. You could learn so much about your inner world and what's go what goes on, what are the triggers that the same over and over again gets you going. And if you can figure out what that is, you'll be a master at knowing who you are and realizing either I'm not going to allow myself to be in those situations with those triggers, or if that's not a possibility, I'm going to realize that I don't have to react that way. I could change my mode of reacting if I just, you know, again, maybe take something that's in the regesh and move it to Seichel, figure it out. But anyway, the point is, is by observing yourself, you can learn more about your Nakuda of Shefa, and you should collect information about yourself to understand what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses. So again, back to the idea of praise and criticism. There's nothing wrong with letting the compliments that people give us nurture us and energize us. Because we said your Nakuda of Shefa, your positive stuff, needs to give you energy to be able to work on the things that aren't so good. If you're going to be just dragged down by, oh, I'm so sick of myself already. I just, I wish I could get away from myself. Like, I'm just so tired of myself. It's just impossible already, right? But instead of getting to that place, allowing yourself to say, you know what, I'm going to, like, let things that I know are good about me energize me and help me, right? We should be using speech to make each other happy. 
So pushing away a compliment is also not correct. You know, we all do that, right? Oh, I, I just got this at Winners for twenty dollars. Don't 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 say you like it. You know? <laughs> Somehow we, I don't know what that is. I actually was thinking about that. I think I had figured it out, but it's too late for me to figure out why we always have to. You know, it's almost like if I if I admit because you know the word lahodot to thank is the same word as to admit, right? which is, you know, going to the deep source of why we don't like to say thank you because it means I'm admitting, I'm admitting that, like, now I guess I owe you one because you just did something nice for me that I had to say thank you for. Or maybe you even gave me a compliment, and if I could just, like, say, oh, no, it's nothing, oh, you know, this old thing or whatever, then somehow we're back on an equilibrium again. I don't have to, like, compliment you next time I see you. I mean, this is... You know, isn't, my, it, isn't it more that you don't want them to feel jealous, like you downplay it because you don't want there to be... Yeah, that could be like too. To show off a yeah, little bit. Like, that oh. could be too. Yeah, that could be too. But, you know, all of our mothers, including this mother, probably said to her daughter, just say thank you and be gracious. <laughs> right. You know, just be gracious. Nobody likes you to go on and on about, you know, well, I didn't really get all that. And I got it on winners. And <laughs> Who cares? Okay, just say thank you. I just, well, I, it's not a big deal. I just wanted to tell you. Right? And, and it's our own stuff. It's our own sense of insecurities again, whatever it is, whether it's admitting or whether it's worrying about the other person's jealousy or whatever it is. It's, it's, you know, just say thank you. And, and, um, yeah, so we don't want to push compliments away. We should use them to nurture and energize us. Um, What do you think? Do you want to continue, or is this enough for tonight? A little bit more? Whatever is good for you. Well, I don't care. I don't mind. I just don't want to completely inundate you. So you want some more? Okay, because we're going to go to a, a different idea, okay? So um, so back to this idea of uh, the core of our self-esteem Self-esteem, let's just give a definition once more, is based on a realistic sense of myself, based on my strengths and my weaknesses. A real, based on a realistic? Based on a, on a realistic sense of myself, which include my strengths and my weaknesses. The core, according to Judaism, of our self-esteem is the fact that we were made B'Tselem Elohim. And therefore, our neshama is untouchable, it's pristine, it's pure, it's perfect, and it can never be harmed. But, even if the neshama is covered up with schmutz, which is, you know, the things that we do that are not always correct, or the things that we strengthen that should be weakened, or the things that we weaken that should be strengthened, that we should be leading with, right? The core is always good and the source of our self-esteem. It's a chelik elokai mima'au. It's a peace, so to speak, I tell people, a piece of Hashem inside of you, right? And that is where you get your self-esteem from. I've got a little bit of God inside of me. And that tells me that I am good, essentially. I may do things that aren't good sometimes. I may say things, but none of that touches that pure essence of who I am, which is where my self-esteem comes from. Okay? I, as Adrian Gold likes to say, I have a body, I am a soul. As opposed to, I have a body. Sorry, I am a body and I have a soul, which unfortunately is the emphasis that is given all around us, right? Which we are constantly having to realize that because we live in this generation and this society, we can get very confused. And that's part of the struggle, too, that the body and the soul have in terms of who should be leading and who should be, who should be the master and who should be the servant, right? 
that neshama, even if the body is out of whack and is bleeding, which it shouldn't be, even still can never be touched or tainted. It's always there, pure, even in a person who is so distant from their mission in this world. Okay. Um, then we talked about high tolerance and low tolerance thresholds, which means which good meat still persevere when I'm pressured. It's a good way to figure out who you are. And which bad meat are still there even without pressure. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about a story in the Torah, the story of the Sota and the story of the Nazir. And we all know the famous question is that the story of the Sota, everybody's familiar with that story? Kathy, are you? Okay, so just, that's okay. Just quickly, a woman who was accused of adultery by her husband and three witnesses witnessed that, saw her, even though he had told her several times not to sequester herself with a certain man. She did it again. So she's now accused of adultery and she has to drink what my husband would joke, you know, some soda water, sota water. Okay. <laughs> so, and, this water, which was magical, it had like Hashem's whatever, I think a name in it, or maybe his name, whatever. Was. Anyway, if she drank it and she, it was true that she was an adulteress, then she would literally blow up, okay? Um, like the people at the Cheta Egel, it was a similar end to the people who... Uh, otherwise, and if she was innocent, anyway, whatever. She went on and became pregnant and from her husband and... It was a good, happy ending. We're not going to go into it because it's a very complicated story. But the question is, is right after that story in the Torah, we then have the episode of the Nazir. The Nazir is somebody who takes a vow to not cut their hair. For example, Samson in the story of Samson and Delilah, Shimshon was a Nazir. They won't eat or drink any grape or wine product, alcohol. And anybody remember what the third thing is that Nazirs do? No cutting they the don't hair. cut the hair. Nope, I said that. No cutting hair, no drinking any alcoholic or grape products. Maybe one more thing. It doesn't matter, okay? The question is why? Why are these two stories back to back? So the answer that's given by Rashi is anyone who saw this woman who acted immorally will abstain from wine. So if you happen to be passing by, let's say, you know, you were on your way to the grocery store and you didn't, you know, and you happen to encounter this woman and this court case taking place and this, you know, huge episode about this woman who's accused of adultery and now she has to go through this terribly horrific ordeal to prove that she's innocent and maybe she is, and maybe, you know. So it's going to shock you so much that you're going to there and then say, you know what? I don't ever want to get myself into a situation like this. I don't even want to be able to come close to a situation like this. I don't trust myself. Maybe this could happen to me. And therefore I am, you know, what do they call it? Going on the wagon, going off the way. What is, what's that alcoholic term? I'm, I'm, I'm giving up anything to do with, with that, okay, with with wine, and I'm letting my hair grow, meaning I'm not going to be busy with my looks and everything else. That's what I'm doing. Okay, wow, so extreme. So what's this all about? So the Torah is teaching us, us that human nature is that we are affected by outside influences. We just talked about this, right? We even get our whole sense of self, unfortunately, if we don't work on our self-esteem, by everything that's going on around us and all comparing ourselves and all the people. We're very, very affected by outside influences. And our natural response is to feel very self-righteous and to look down on what other people are doing. You know, oh my gosh, I would never do that. I can't believe how low they are. Right? And she says that... Even when we think that what's happening in society is terrible and we walk around all day discussing how low the secular society is and, you know, how decadent it is and, you know, how they, and we're very self-righteous about, you know, what a horrible world it is out there in America and all that stuff. She calls that cheap spirituality because you didn't really do anything to grow or to develop yourself or to change. You're just busy. Bashing everybody. bashing everybody and everything, and I would never do that. And I, you know, and because of that, I am really, 
I have nothing that I have to work on. And she says that that's chief spirituality. It's basically saying, I'm better than they are. Really, when we see something that's kind of disturbing, and by the way, it's a very Jewish idea, hashkacha practice, that there's a reason Hashem put you there to see it, for good or for bad, right? If you saw something that, hi, Penny. Hi, you traitor. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> um, come on, you can join us at the table. You don't have to sit there and be punitively punishing yourself. I know. Come, come, no, I want to see your beautiful face. Anyway, um, instead of being, you should be saying to yourself, you should be reflecting back to yourself when you see something. How am I vis-a-vis -vis this topic? We should be using these triggers to grow, to objectively reflect it back to ourselves. How am I on this topic? If I was alone with a woman who was beautiful, blah, 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 hmm, and I had a few drinks at the party, and my wife and I just had a fight last night, hmm, you know, there's an idea that says, you know, don't trust yourself until the day you die. And guess what? The higher the level you are on spiritually, the tougher the battles can be, especially in that kind of a situation. Don't trust yourself till the day you die. The greater potential you have in terms of reaching tremendous levels for good, believe me, the Yetzirah is right there with you, planning a new you know, attack. So, when you see the Sota, somebody who's reflecting back to themselves and says, well, it wasn't me, but it could have been me. I think maybe just as a little bit of a balancing myself out, I'm going to stay away from wine and liquor and not allow myself to ever get into a state of inebriation where this could maybe happen to me because there's a reason Hashem allowed me to see this. What lesson can I take from it? How can I do something preventative? To pre You know, this is the way, not... Oh my gosh. I would never do something like that. What a low life. And she gives this example, which is interesting. She always gives really down-to-earth example. She says one day she was in the car with her kids, and she lives in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem. And she said that they were heading to the Kotel, and as they were coming to Shar Yafo, to Jaffa Gate, there were two Arab kids who were fighting with each other, like really fighting like cats and dogs, Right. And one of her kids made a comment about these Arabs, the behavior of these, these Arabs. So she, being a psychologist and a Torah teacher, turned to her kids and said to them, tell me something, would you ever fight with your friend on the sidewalk or with your brother on the sidewalk? And they both said, no, I never, we never do that. It's disgusting. It's, no, I never do that, right? And then she said to them, how about in the comfort of our own home? Would you do it there? When no one's looking at you, would you then fight with your brother? And of course, they immediately say, well, yeah, of course I would, right? So again, they're saying, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't do it like those low Arabs. But if I was, you know, if we're at home with you, mom, we might really go at it. Okay, so instead of saying, well, you know, compared to them, we're better, well, say to yourself, if it looks so bad on the street, do you think it looks any different in your house? think you look any more noble in your house when you're acting the way they are on the street? You know, we just have our price. So use whatever's going on, the Baal Shem Tov says this, as a source of evaluation for yourself. Whether it's something good that you aspire to, you see somebody doing some incredible act of kindness, and again, instead of saying, oh, I'm really, I might as well give it up. I, 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 I'm nothing, right? Or the opposite, oh, look at them, oh, I would never do something like that, I'm brave, right? No, when, whatever you witness, ask yourself, where am I holding vis-a-vis -vis this situation? You know, somebody's in trouble, I'm paralyzed, and the person next to me runs to help. They're the first person there. Well, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I so useless? In a situation, what can I learn from that person? How are they like that? What? Well, tell me, how are you like that? Oh, you're a nurse. Okay, 
you know, like you're a doctor, I get it, like you, you're, you, you know, you've been trained to be like this, or, you know, it's part of your nature, whatever it is, but figure it out as opposed to cheap spirituality one way or the other, or downgrading yourself, don't be hard on yourself. So the Nazir, when he sees the Sota, he evaluates himself. He says, either he says, that could never happen to me. That could have been his first response. That could never happen to me. I'm holding on a much higher level than that man who had an adulterous relationship. Or he says, you know what? Maybe if I was drunk, that could happen to me. And he's not going to this extreme of, how could they ever do that? Or... The Nazar enhances his sense of self by trying to understand himself better vis-a-vis -vis the Sota. And again, what we're learning from this, this episode in the Torah is, on the one hand, we said before that we have to be careful not to be triggered by outside events, not to measure ourselves, you know, that family acts so nice, we're so dysfunctional, we're, we're a bunch of losers, right? Well, they have it so good, and they're, you know, they have a great happy husband, and mine isn't, and, you know, that's it, it's over, right? But rather, she says, pay attention to the outside triggers. And again, move it from emotionally, just emotional discovery to intellect. It's interesting. She says, in our generation, post-Holocaust, and I don't know where she gets this from, but it must be from somewhere, either psychological, data, or maybe Rav Volda, who lived in this generation, you know, died just recently and grew up not religious and became religious uh, in, in Berlin. He was a professor or something. Um, she says, for some reason in our generation, we're very bad at moving it out of the regesh. We let it stay there. We don't move it here, and it's a problem. So if you say about yourself, we're a dysfunctional family, on the one hand, we had the first idea, which is saying, don't be triggered by that perfect family next to you. But on the other hand, we're saying, pay attention to those things that trigger you. And ask yourself, well, what can I learn from this? Just like the Nazir did when he saw the Sota. He said, what can I learn from this? You know what? Maybe if I was a little drunk, this could happen to me. Okay, now obviously the Nazar is extreme, and Hashem and the Torah is painting an extreme situation, both the Sota episode and the way he reacts to it. But it's there to tell us that if you see something, for good or for bad, the proper response, again, is not to be, ugh, I might as well give up. My family's so dysfunctional and they're so perfect. Forget it. Or, oh, look at me. I'm so much better than they are. I don't need to grow. I'm good the way I am to be self-righteous, right? But to actually say, hmm, what can I learn from this? What, what can I... The Baal Shem Tov says the Nazir is actually reacting in a very balanced way. He's not saying, huh, I'm so great, that would never happen to me, on the one hand. But he's not saying, oh no, that could happen to me. He's not panic-stricken. He took it from here. He said, okay, what can I do to protect myself? And again, this is obviously meant to teach us something, but we can apply it to different situations. And he said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, restrain myself completely from grapes and wine products. And by the way, Anazir only did this for a certain amount of time. It was corrective, right? It's like if we say, I'm going to, just for this hour of the day, and I mean, this is like, you know, just for this hour of the day, I'm not going to speak gossip about anybody. Okay, from 3 to 4 a.m. in the morning when I'm sleeping, <laughs> I promise I won't say anything negative about anyone. Okay, and then you get better, you say, okay, I'll do it from 1 to 2 in the morning. Okay, now I'll even do it when I'm awake with people around me, right? But the point is, is if you see that you are constantly enjoying Lush and Hara and getting the word out or telling bad news to everybody, and you say to yourself, i got to do something corrective. I could either tape my mouth, like my teacher did to me in grade 3, you know, 
or <laughs> into one other kid who stuck his tongue out under the tape, so he got extra tape stuck on. <laughs> but anyhow, never, for some reason, something's sticking in your mind for life, you know? But anyway, the point is, I can either do something corrective before it's too late, but I can still catch myself, right? And then I don't have to do it forever. I'll, I'll be back in the middle. I'll be back in the middle path. I'll do something a little extreme in order to make sure that I'm, I'm middle, okay? So that's the idea, and that's where we're going to end today because I think that's a new idea to think about. The third thing is that he can't come in close contact with the dead. Ah, thank you for proving that. <laughs> he can't come into close contact with the dead, which is interesting why, but obviously it has to it's do... Like whole, well, yes, it has to do with life. holiness. What what the it's Nazir is doing... It's like a koan. Right, the koan doesn't cut his hair either? No, no, the coin has to always going, have a hair. No, the no, king always has to have a hair. Right. So, you know, in Judaism, being next to dead uh, contaminates you spiritually, right? Um, we know, and, you know, this is not a lecture on uh, a class on Tuma and Tahara, but uh, the reason a Kohen, for example, my uncle died this week, and my brother said, well, I'm not going to be there because my brother's a Kohen, and it's a graveside funeral in a cemetery. So he said, please remind everybody. He had to remind me too, because I was probably going to go, where is he? You know, um, that I'm not coming because I can't. Because a Kohen has extra Kedusha, because a Kohen was the priest when the Jews had the temple. And therefore, any kind of contact with anything to do with death, right, means that, especially in the times when we had the temple, it had more ramifications you become spiritually contaminated. By the way, we all become spiritually contaminated. We know that when we visit a cemetery. That's why they have a little washing sink. Whenever you leave any cemetery or, you know, any place where a body has been around you in a casket, you, you, you see there's a sink there because you need to wash your hands in a ritual way to get rid of the idea that you've just been in contact with something that is the antithesis of holiness, which is death. Okay, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but let's just say l'chaim. That's why we Jews are very into life, and life is very a positive, strong idea, even to the point that you know if we just come into a room where somebody's lying dead, it means that we have been affected in a spiritual way, and we need to re-enter the world of life by getting rid of whatever that contamination was. Just for Penny's sake, you know, in the morning when we wake up, we say that we've been in a death-like kind of place when we sleep, right? I mean, I always say, you know, if the Martians came from the moon, you know, to the planet Earth when everybody was lying in their beds like this, let's just say everybody's having a good night's sleep that night, like everybody on the planet, right? And everybody's lying there comatose, like they would say, like, what the heck happened here? Like everybody's dead. Because when you're sleeping, it's considered 160th of death, like you are experiencing a death-like state. And that's why when Jews wake up in the morning, your, your soul, so to speak, traveled up during the night a little bit, part of it, part of it stayed here so you could still be alive in the morning, but part of it traveled up. That's a little bit about dreams and all that stuff. And in the morning when it comes back, because you've experienced this death-like state, we then, in the morning, we want, we say that even though it's no longer with us, it remains on our fingertips. Okay? That there's like something on our fingertips from having had this experience of being in a death-like kind of state. And therefore, we wash our hands in the morning with a cup, and we wash like this. One, two, three, four, five, six. We do it six times. And that, we say, is how we remove what we call in Hebrew the Ruach Ra, which in English sounds really spooky, the evil spirit, the bad stuff that we that death always represents in Judaism. Death always represents the opposite of holiness. Okay? It's a necessary evil, but that's what it represents. And so we get rid of it every morning by washing our hands in this way. Okay. Um, Thank you for coming, and thank you for your comments. I appreciate this. I read and Hashem, we'll see you next week.
Hope you enjoyed this class. To sponsor a future class or for a complimentary and completely confidential coaching session with me, as I support you in reaching your goals and actualizing your true potential, please email me at DevorahDale at Yahoo.ca. That's Devorah, D-E-V-O-R-A-H, Vale, V-A-L-E, at Yahoo.ca.